Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. All right, here we are again, Santiago, talking about Doug Ford and what he does to destroy the province. Right now we're talking about Bill 23, and that's going to bring us into a whole other discussion on developer influence and politics and money in politics. But uh, what what has people talking about all of this again, because we did talk about this in the municipal election, right, on how detrimental it is for developers to have such big pockets in politics. But Bill 23 in Ontario, most people are really upset that uh, this bill is going to open up what Ontario has is called a green belt. It's protected green space in Ontario that has previously been protected um, from development for (laughs) obvious reasons, right? (laughs) And it's no longer going to be. But a, a larger part of that bill that I don't think folks are paying enough attention to at the moment, I think, is, and what is pertinent to this conversation is the lack of checks and balances that are going to be on developers after this. And I think Santiago has a really good argument he'll he'll lay out later on on why that is a bad thing and has proven to be a bad thing already. And really, Bill 23 just sets to make this a whole lot worse. Um, Santiago, have you had a chance to look at Bill 23? I mean, what do you what do you make of what's happening right now? I mean, yeah, like I've looked over what the official messaging is and people's <laughs> reaction to it, because those are two very, very different things. Right. Um, the more homes built faster act. Right. Kind of ironic because that's not. Is that actually re- what it's called? Yep, that's what it's called. <laughs> Say it and again. Say it again. <laughs> More Homes Built Faster Act, which is clearly already starting off not understanding what the problem is from the Ontario government. But of course, you know, it sounds good, sounds flashy. We have enough homes if we wanted to house every single person in the country. Just want to start off there because there's a very common messaging that you hear that, you know, housing prices, that we're in a crisis because it's a supply issue. We don't have enough supply. Bullshit. We have enough supply. The issue is treating housing um, as a way to make money as opposed to a human right that everybody needs, that everybody needs shelter. We don't acknowledge that everybody needs shelter, and this is the consequences of that. This is a ridiculous distraction from actually acknowledging what the problem is and doing anything to deal with it. But, you know, what else is new? Yeah, the Ontario Architects issued a statement that I think hits on a couple of your points there, but particularly that getting more space isn't the problem, right? I I think what the quote here is, there's 86, just over 86,000 acres within the GTA currently zoned and ready for development. So whatever the problem is, it's definitely not needing more green space. 
what you have is a bill that is designed to meet every wish of Doug Ford's developer friends. And, you know, I'm going to do this quite often in the episode. I'm going to say Doug Ford this and that because that's easy to do. But it this is how capital interacts with the government. Right. When we look at those reports of developer money and politics, uh, you'll see that they develop they they donate to whoever they think will be in power. Right. Um, There's some Toronto city councillors that took in some good dough uh, that now uh, are MPPs for the Ontario NDP. So they hedge all their bets. It's not a phenomenon that's unique to Ford. But man, (laughs) when you look at the map and this land had previously been earmarked as not being open for development, it's curious that a lot of developers have already purchased this land. In fact, once they had kind of been in negotiations with Ford leading up to his campaign bid for leader is when we're seeing a lot of these purchases take ha- take place. They're trying to play this off like that's totally normal, that they just always buy land that will just sit there because, you know, they're conservation authorities, apparently. But now they can build subdivisions. Bill 23 will open this up to subdivisions for them. The good thing is that is mobilizing a lot of folks. But again, I'm going to go back to some things that we're missing. It's not just going to open up the green space. The, that, uh, that architect letter laid out some points that I had missed. Uh, and when we talk about the housing crisis, because I know we're going to here, um, these, are, these are even worse if you can if you can balance it. So the inclusion level for affordable housing... And we know that's a problem, right? You guys can't see me like scare quotes around affordable housing because those numbers are awful. There's really not a lot of uh, help there. You know, what developers can call affordable, what, what a lot of municipalities deem as affordable isn't. So these quotas don't always mean a lot, but it had been at 20%. It's going to go down to 5%. So developers have to just provide 5% of what they're building to be affordable, whatever that means. And the length of time it has to stay affordable used to be 99 years. It'll now be 25 years. So in the midst of this awful housing crisis, they remove all of the other victories that had been won in terms of trying to secure more affordable housing, trying to balance that that profit versus people that we see when we're talking about developers and their influence and planning. I mean, can you imagine, Santiago, what that's going to do for the city of Toronto, who's like desperate for affordable housing and rental units? Like there's just no there's no impetus to build them now. No. And, you know, as I'm hearing all of this, I can't help but think if if one was to do this the right way, like identify the problem. Okay, we need affordable housing. We need places that people can afford. How do you solve that? And if you were to treat this in a scientific manner, analyze, you know, what has worked in the past across the world, what hasn't worked, how do you actually create affordable housing? There is no one who would ever come to the conclusion that this is the solution. (laughs) This is, I mean, trying to sell it off like that is treating people like they're idiots. It is quite frankly, like the audacity of the conservative government to attempt this 
No, they're, it's just blatant lying. Yeah, you look at this policy, it's clearly been written in the back rooms. Like, uh, I think I was reading an article from Canada Land that outlines the whining and dining that go on between the developers and Doug Ford's government, taking them down to Florida. Uh, you know, they say no government dollars were spent and whatever. But, you know, taking them to suites at at sporting events and swearing that no government business was discussed. I mean, there's no way because none of this bill reads as anything that any community member had asked for, right? It is like the wish list of the eight most powerful developers. And there's been a lot of good independent media investigating into this, right? Like we've seen and not even just media, right? Acorn put out a report. Horizon Ottawa uh, took a look at what was happening over there as well. And like I said, Canada Land did a good job of mapping out all of these relationships between the PC government, former chiefs of staff. Uh, it's it's a very tight circle of elites and very much in cahoots with developers. Like it. It runs deep, you know, and it's endless. Like I, I started to look at it, right? Because I know we were going to talk about it as an episode. And it was, it's not just Bill 23. He's clearly, you know, been placating to developers since he started to run for leader. <laughs> I wonder how deep this goes. I mean, this is an entire, I you know, I tried to do a little bit more research, but BC has a group that, you know, tries to oppose this. Halifax has a municipal group that's trying to thwart this. And it's important to mention that, I mean, we have this data for large metropolitans. You know, we know what it is in Toronto. We know what it is in Ottawa. It doesn't begin or end there. Uh, developers contribute massively to the campaigns of uh, city council races and mayoral races in smaller cities and towns across um, the entire country. And when you live in a smaller city or town, these races, there's very little money in them to begin with. The power that is acquired through that money from development carries a lot more weight there, and it's incredibly difficult to oppose. You know, if you're looking at the suburbs of Toronto... Nobody's talking about this there, but it's just as present there, right? And how do you combat that? It's absolute. It's, it's, it's absolute in its power. Those who receive that money can afford to win. Those who do not, cannot. It's not very much a democracy at all, is it? No, and I think like in my community, personally, I'd be horrified. I'm looking at that, this kind of web of who's who between developers and the the PC party of Ontario. And I see a lot of uh, local figures. Carolyn Mulroney is right there um, <laughs> because as the, the minister of transportation, right, these highways that are being built, uh, highway, the Bradford bypass and highway 413, they're also have interesting maps completely dotted with the same developers that we're going to, you know, seem to, arise in every article that you talk about when, when in terms of playing an influence over politics. And Peter Van Loan, my former MP here, and he owns half the neighborhood. My current MP, Scott Davidson, he owns the other half. And <laughs> 
we see how closely that Mulroney and Peter Van Loan are tied to uh, like these huge developers. So, and there's no way any media around me is going to do the digging that's needed to kind of out this. So I appreciate like when Acorn and Horizon Ottawa spend some of their resources to give us these numbers. Um, we talk about them, but we didn't provide any of them. So let me just... Uh, so just to give folks an idea of how prevalent developer money is in elections, just during that election period that we're allowed to track spending and whatnot, 34% of all campaign contributions in the 2018 Toronto election came from people to develop, uh, tied to developers. In Ottawa, that w- it was closer to half. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Horizon Ottawa put out a, a report called Follow the Money. And again, we'll link all this stuff in our show notes like like we do. But nearly half came to folks tied to developers. And uh, get this, their chief of planning, commi- uh, their chief of the planning committee, 96% of her campaign was funded by folks. So we see that connection there. Like it's sometimes it seems innocuous, all these Zo- requests for rezoning, bylaw amendments, right? But when you've essentially paid off the the person that is in charge of the committee that decides all of this, the job is done. And uh, they also did a great idea of correlating the investment. So if there's a lot of development going on, so like Santiago, you talked about small towns or having this unknown amount of developer money in it. We know that it actually will be a lot because they've been able to correlate when there's a lot invested, when there's a lot of development going on, which is happening in the places outlying Toronto. The donations that go into the campaigns almost double, right? Because they've got a lot to lose. They need to make sure that their idea of planning goes through versus perhaps the city planner's idea of planning. And the result is that housing situation you talk about a lot, right? Like where the community doesn't look like a community because it was built by developers. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's much city planning outside of (laughs) the developers as of right now. Um, One of the things that it comes as a result of this that you see a lot in uh, I'll use an example here in Toronto. Um, there's in Etobicoke South, there's a neighborhood called Mimico and in Mimico um, they built several skyscrapers, like incredibly tall buildings, you know, um, near the corner of Royal York and Lakeshore area. No, not a bit further uh, East than Royal York, but anyways, so these are thousands of people who could live here. Um, and there is next to no infrastructure there. There's next to no transit. I mean, you have one bus that goes north and the Queen streetcar, which goes east-west, which barely meets the needs of the community. There's really nothing there at all. I mean, there is so many units and there is literally nothing there. Nothing. No no planning around, okay, how do we make this not just somewhere where people physically live, but where some, where, somewhere where people can have lives, where people can build community, can build something, and they didn't. Why? Because that's how it works when 
the needs are just maximizing the amount of units to maximize the amount of profits made for developers. It's the same case when you start looking at, at suburbs that pop up. You know, you have hundreds of houses, nothing else, you know. People live there, but they don't spend their time there because there's nothing to do. And people end up very disconnected. And, I mean, in the long run, there's benefits for the status quo and keeping people disconnected, right, and preventing people from building up any actual community. And, I mean, this is something that's become very normalized here in Canada. I think this is just how people think it works living in a society. Um, it's not the case you know, I've I've done my fair bit of traveling around the world, and this is not what it looks like in other places, you know? Well, we've had episodes where we talk about, like, food deserts that exist downtown because of poor development. And, yeah, there's just, like, horror stories. And that is with the little bits of public consultation, because I know you've all walked by a site where they've got that black and white sign that's talking about rezoning a space and there's a date for a public consultation. And if you have time, you can show up to some random building and, you know, gripe about what they're about to do. But I don't think that plays much influence. But either way, Bill 23 is going to remove the need for public consultation, you know, before folks build these huge subdivisions. So... <laughs> There's going to be even less community input on, you know, where things should go, what things need to be included. And I imagine this is such a huge step back, too, because a lot of the, like, through York Region Social Planning Committee and the Affordable Housing Committee that they have, I know a lot of the work that they spend, or a lot of the time that they spend is on trying to convince municipal governments to take the steps necessary to address the housing situation. So, you know, instituting a vacancy tax. And I look back on the work like that seemed really important. It is a step to, you know, bringing in revenue for the municipality and putting houses back into the market, hopefully, you know. Um, so it has potential. But then when you see things like Bill 23 or you read all the other kinds of exceptions that are always made, it's just like, what impact will that even have now when they're really calling the big shots developers? You know, like they're saying, no, um, all those all those retrofitting ideas or requirements that we've built into buildings so that they're greener or more accessible, that could all go out the window, all of that work all of those gains, right, from a provincial level. So not even one by one. Um, there's not a lot of local activists can do on the municipal level now mm -hmm. to to make a difference there. And a lot of the work in terms of affordable housing is done at that level. Now you're going to be left negotiating with the province and, and developers to make sure that units are affordable and that there's enough of them. And that's going to be a disaster. My, my question here is, you know, as we keep, you know, using the word affordable housing, what exactly <laughs> makes housing affordable? Is it the size, the location? Well, what is it? Like, if you want to put affordable housing in Toronto, how do you do that? What makes housing? Is it just how the quality of the unit? Because I would say absolutely not. Right. And I want to bring up um, 
uh, article I recently read in The Hoser uh, where they looked at the myth of affordable housing in Toronto, right? So defining it as something that could be afforded with 30% of a household's monthly income before taxes if you're making minimum wage in the city, right? And looking at 608 listings, they found six in the entire city of Toronto. Uh, not Sorry, not just the city, the, the boroughs of Toronto. So, so the GTA. Oh, no, not the GTA, but looking at like Scarborough, Etobicoke, North Hey, York, man, those city are part of the city now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. But <laughs> yeah, like the city yeah. of Toronto can still refer to like the physical borough city of Toronto. I I'm talking you. the full six. I feel you know? fight brewing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Scarborough, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I think most of them were actually in Scarborough of the yeah. six that they found. Um, I imagine. That's six. That's six options, you know. And. If you look around Toronto, there's some pretty shitty housing, pretty small units. There's pretty dark and horrible basements that have very little. You know what I mean? There's It's it's not a quality issue. We have the bad quality that should lead. To, you know, what I'm saying is that addressing this issue, it's not as simple as, you know, we, we need more because, you know, population is growing as a population should do um, in a country that's the second largest country by land mass in the world. You know, it's not, we don't have a lot of people here. That is not the issue. We have enough units. We are just allowing the market to run wild in housing. Everybody's looking to make money off of it. How many people are looking to use it as, as as an investment tool, putting, you know, their whole hopes and dreams for the for their retirements into it. But in doing so, what does that lead to? Nobody's really picked up that narrative, you know, the decommodification of housing. Not when I say nobody, I mean politicians. Because yeah. even when the NDP talks about affordable housing, I mean, man, they send out a tweet that just drove me nuts. It was um, every worker deserves a home they could afford. I mean, I don't have we don't have the time to unpack just how bad that messaging is. But <laughs> even, like it's like nobody's really challenging that narrative, even though we do have cooperative housing, you know, housing that isn't driven by profiteering. But it is sad. It It's sad. And it's not it's definitely not just the Ford government. It's the municipal level governments. It's it's Canada wide reading articles. It's a big problem in the United States. Now, there are folks that are taking steps to. Get it out, get get developer money out, because I think that's what lies at the root when you when you talk about these housing problems. Right. And why don't they make sense? Right. This isn't the solution. This is right. Well, this is profit driven, right? That those are the developers making those decisions, not like rational city planners or community stakeholders, right? And so the result is bad housing, but it's entirely driven by that relationship between capital and the government. And it's ugly. Uh, and we, I mean, when we give those numbers of developer money in politics, let's be clear, a lot of work had to be done because technically in Ontario and, and most of Canada, if not all, someone might correct me there, 
you know, corporations and unions can't donate directly to political parties. So folks had to do the work of finding out who owns, who are the executives. A lot of them are consortiums. So doing all of that kind of mapping and tracking the donations like that. Um, because back in, I should have done my homework better, 2016, <laughs> anyway, some, uh, they passed a bill, right, trying to remove that influence, or at least it was done under the guise of trying to remove corporate interest from politics, and those donations were banned. But what it did is it raised the individual limit. <laughs> so those rich people who do are, are typically always donating to politics because it really does matter to them. Um, they max out, right? They, they can all of a sudden give a whole lot more. And they created what was third-party advertisers in Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that is, again, a really huge problem politically because it's another example of developers with very deep pockets being allowed to make being allowed to be a huge influence in our campaigns. So if anybody can remember, do you remember Ontario Proud? What <laughs> what was your impression? You know, like you couldn't participate in either of the last two provincial elections without coming across their material. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious what it is, right? I mean, the, the name says it all, right? We know anybody using that Proud uh, <clears throat> moniker has something to prove is right wing, typically nationalist in in nature. Um, yeah, and w w one thing also I, I, I want to add on to this is when it comes to the amount of donations that are being made and, you know, you could argue like, okay, well, if it's individuals, will other individuals outweigh that? I mean, in the last 2018 Toronto election, uh, municipal election, there were 5,504 donations out of 2,956,000 eligible um, voters, right? And so that's 0.2% of the population, and That's a small amount. Of that, <laughs> a very large number have ties to the development industry, right? So when it comes to who exactly these elected officials respond to, they don't have a very large base of other donors that they have to worry about, you know? Their campaigns are surrounded, are like are centered around these individuals and and their concerns. And that system of financing elections does not lead to democracy. And quite frankly, in Toronto, most people can't afford to say, you know what, I can spare a little bit of money to contribute to a campaign, especially when they can't tell the goddamn difference because every single person has the exact same platform and then will go <laughs> and govern in whatever way they want when they're actually elected. Let it out, Santiago. <laughs> yeah, like I remember going through all 12 candidates in Spadina Fort York's um, platform. I, I read all their platforms and goddamn, there was next to no difference between almost any of them, you know? It's and, and that's the case in so many places. And I'm somebody who cares very deeply about this and who, you know, like I'm, I'm in journalism. Uh, my job is to stay informed and uh, I, I do that. What about somebody who doesn't have the goddamn time or, or, or 
and not really cares enough to make the effort and and that's fine not care because like why should you care when it's all the same you know they're, they're not exactly giving people a reason to be invested in this in the slightest so in those situations you know why would somebody who is already not having a lot of money to spare why would they donate to anybody why would they put their money and so I say all of this because this is so very broken on a democratic level. This leads to corruption and this leads to these systems and these problems where people are just trying to maximize the the amount of short-term wealth that they can accumulate without caring what it does to the larger system. And we end up with housing crisis and, and food insecurity and all the problems that we're seeing growing in Canada. And people are not doing well right now. So, I mean, it's it, it all comes back together, right? And it's all a giant mess. That's the thing. Yeah, like you talk about the the size of donations and who's making them. That's the thing about Ontario Proud, too. Like It tried to bill itself as some, like, grassroots movement, right? Mm-hmm. Like like the Freedom Convoy. And uh, did I say that right? Like, you could tell I said Freedom <laughs> Convoy. I just want to slow it down there for folks to make sure. Uh, anyway, um, and it wasn't. It wasn't. I credited Canada Land earlier in the episode for an article I read that was actually the National Observer. So in my notes, you'll see it all. But Canada Land actually did a great piece on Ontario Proud and developers. And turns out almost all of their funding came from a very small circle of folks. And and Santiago, when you're talking about you know, those those max dollars, I don't know what, like sixteen hundred, right, per candidate that that folks can dole out individually. But when they're donating to these third party advertiser advertisers I was talking about, folks like Madame Holmes, right? So these are people who are certainly profiting off of Doug Ford's policies. A hundred thousand dollars they gave to Ontario Proud and the dollar amounts that they're able to share on Canada land are just what was accumulated during a certain period designated. I think it's a few weeks before the writ and including the writ. But either way, it's not the entire year of fundraising. So just kind of gearing up for the election. Folks like Merritt Ontario and Nashville Development were giving $50,000. Then they've got, you know, 17 other companies at $10,000 a piece. So anybody who's run campaigns like this is adding up in your head, right? Like this is a lot of money that went into some really hard partisan stuff, too. Like this was ugly they aren't just like benefiting from the development that's happening, but it was really ugly messaging. Like Ontario Proud were the folks putting out those lawn signs you might have seen, unplug win. Like a real misogynistic kind of messaging there. And like they were straight up awful. And these these developers are funding those kinds of campaigns. So just in case you needed another reason to hate these capitalists. Um, they're not just buying our politician campaigns, but they're really lowering the bar for political discourse and stoking some real ugly, uh, often racist and and otherwise bigoted points of view. So, it, you know, any attempts we've made in Ontario to take that kind of money out of the political sphere entirely have failed. 
terribly. Yeah, no, we don't live in anything even close to resembling a democracy. So uh, I, I find it very funny when Canadians um, attempt to be proud of our democracy. There's nothing to be proud of. And this is this is all a big business, right? We're not trying to actually tackle these issues. These developers are never going to advocate for building more cooperative housing, for example. <laughs> right? What? But that's what a lot of people want, right? So not doing it is a business decision. That is not how you run a society. I don't know what, like, I, I'm just saying all these things because I'm pissed off and annoyed at, like, having, like, this, just the discourse around this is so not useful for anything. And, you know, these developer, at the end of the day, there's not even that many of these developer companies. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a monopoly. You know what I mean? It's very, very few amount of people who are actually profiting off of this. What exactly, like, how are we letting this happen? Profiting big time. Like, I was reading one of the articles and some guy called himself a small player and he's taking in $650 million a year. That highway that they're going to build, the Highway 413, that's going to cost. So, uh, in other words, someone else is going to (laughs) get $10 billion for saving commuters 30 minutes, right? These are and, and and saving commuters thirty minutes in it. I'm going to use kind of like a similar argument there that we use sometimes when it comes to um, like like in the other episode when we were talking about with uh, the raises for for the school workers, right? How they've been losing money for so many years, so it's not actually a raise. Same thing with this: you're losing minutes from not actually having high speed rail and other forms of transit that could actually get people in a far more efficient way from point A to point B. So saving time? No, you're not saving time. You're losing time because this is what we're building instead of building something that actually works. And I remind people that high-speed rail has been around for like 60 years. The bullet train is pretty much an antiquity at this point, (laughs) yet we haven't seen anything even resembling that in North America for no logical reason whatsoever because, like, I mean, for God's sakes, the Golden Horseshoe has such a massive population. Connect just the Golden Horseshoe. Start there. You know, like, yeah. And in these communities where they're like building these highways, you're right. And it's only certain people it's going to save 30 minutes because like up where I live, the Bradford Bypass, those are folks who can afford to commute long distances. And I know a lot of poor people have to commute far distances, but I'm talking about folks who don't even have cars and who are forced to just take minimum job minimum wage jobs in our communities that are just garbage because they can't even commute and there's no train service anywhere and we don't have buses so it's even the policies that are passing are are not only benefiting elites in the investment you know like they own the development companies they own the contractors that are going to be building these roads they'll probably get the tolls in the end right like it's but then also it impacts the poorest in these communities in really negative ways. Like those quotas on affordable housing, like that should be really huge news. I know the green belt is important, but so much work has been put in to try to make housing more affordable and to lower the quota here. It's just, it's so blatant that they're driven 100% by developer lobbyists and nothing else. Like, $10 billion just on a highway because they have land connected to it. They bought it all up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I'm going to reiterate, 
it's not just Ford and it's not just developers, but this is just a natural relationship between capital and government. And we often like I was kind of chuckling, like not at Santiago, but like when he's saying, you know, like, why don't we have trains and this isn't the solution? It's because it just seems so freaking obvious to everybody else. Right. What we need. And then we get the opposite. And I wonder how long this garbage goes on before folks push back a little bit more. I, I And I like that people are pretty upset about Bill 23, and I think it's lifted the veil to a degree. And hopefully this show, you know, obviously contributes to people being hyper aware of that relationship and what it's doing, right? Yeah, and also one, one of the things with Bill 23 that we haven't mentioned yet is people are also angry because it is a blatant breaking of a promise that Doug Ford made a few years ago, right? He he was going to do this. There was pushback. He said, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I will not touch the green belt. I promise. And now what's he doing? He's going back on that. And people are angry about that because you can't trust the goddamn things that they say because they're only looking to make it. And even look at when he announced all of this, right? When when all the stuff was happening with the education workers in CUPE and he announces this out of nowhere, like, oh, you know, they're, they're too angry about that to focus on this much, right? Well, you know what you can trust them, right, is when they are in meetings with these folks, with capital, because that's, that's what came out in, in Ford's race to become the leader of the PC party, which eventually made him premier. He promised them straight up, yeah, I will open up the green belt. And then his comments became public and he backtracked. But, you know, believe them in those spaces 100 percent because they owe those folks. Those folks paid for their campaigns and God knows what else. And and so, yeah, you're 100 percent don't believe them on the campaign trail unless they're at a five thousand dollar a plate dinner. Then I think their money is almost bank. And, you know, I, I, I can't help but wonder, like, what, what do people believe is the reason that these politicians are going into politics and trying to do things right <laughs> do they do they think that that they they're looking at the world and saying i have ideas of how to make this better and that's what i'll do because there is so much maybe show. they do maybe I, I, they that's, do that's the yeah. sad part right i mean is that's that, why it, i ran <laughs> no yeah but tear th- rolling why, down my face on <laughs> that that's the reasons why people should be running Right. But if you were doing that, you would, for example, build high speed rail. Why? Because there is mo- there, there is so much economic benefit to connecting people, to connecting the country. You know, if you have the ability to travel around to different cities and towns without having to drive, spend a lot of money, spend a lot on gas, you know, you, it, it, when it becomes an actually viable option. That stimulates local economies as well. Instead of money leaving, you know, people saying, okay, I'm going to go to the States for tourism. I'm going to go do this. You know, go connect Canada. People will spend money in these communities. That's good for the economy. That's good for people. That, that Then that's me looking at things through a little bit of like, you know, the trying to like put it in like the conservative language a little bit, you know. And it's That's just, for the it's, book. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that's the logical thing, right? Like, that is what you would do if you were trying to actually make things better. But you're not. And that's why it's not happening, right? Like, 
there is so much when it comes to how we plan our societies that, that say about what our values are as a society. What, what does it say about us, the way that we build neighborhoods that are lifeless, the way that we, we don't invest in, in actually building any sort of community anywhere and that we don't try and connect people and that we make it so that people are as isolated as possible? What does that say about our values as a country, as a, as a society? Because it's very clear to me. And I think people should be far more outraged about this on a very consistent basis. But we've been lulled into uh, a sleep over this because nothing ever gets done and nothing is ever. We have no opportunities here. Well, I'll be, I'll be honest. Between like all of the issues I get mad about, I don't know if I've spent much energy in the community planning, you know, either that's e- whether introspectively thinking about it or coming up with solutions. And that just might just be me, but I think it's not just a sleep. It's similar to like what we've talked about on other episodes where we're fighting so many battles that seem at such a high priority. And this seems to be one of those topics that are a little harder to grasp. And, you know, we're talking about zoning bylaws, right? Like I could feel myself dozing off, right? Like it's not, (laughs) um, but, but when you really look at it, yeah, no, but when I reflect on what you had to say there, what, as how it reflects on us as, as a people and our values and how we prioritize our spaces, I think, yeah, if we did, even if even if you and your conservative neighbor got together and planned a community or knew how to access the avenues to allow you to have input on how your community was built, they would be completely different spaces. But those spaces have all been cut off to you. So all that those great ideas that you might have, Santiago, or all these other great people who have visions on how to build better communities or have seen better examples that we could bring here um those are those are developer avenues they've been and with bill 23 yeah. those avenues are completely sealed off to anybody now even the city planners who go to school for that right like and, and, and the, the irony is like the people who kind of are putting a lot more time and dedication into these issues you know like the urbanists yeah are often lacking you know the deeper analysis that the class that analysis would, yeah, the class analysis, you know, you like the socialism, <laughs> you know, they, they they are lacking that. There's a complete lack of anything socialist in, in, in the urbanists, right? And I mean, one of them ran for Toronto mayor, Jill Peñalosa, uh, got completely obliterated in it. Uh, and Jill is not very particularly close <laughs> to being a socialist either right but my, my my points here being that like there needs to be that holistic approach to politics where it's it's all connected this is all connected it's it's all part of a bigger issue the issue is capitalism capitalism has branched out into like all of these and you need people tackling all of the avenues you know it's it, it's it's vast and we cannot do it all. So we have to prioritize certain things. And, and at the end of the day, yeah, you're not going to get people excited about zoning most of the time. So we don't really, you know, talk too much about zoning, even though I know in Toronto, the, 
I forget the number. It's somewhere between 70 and 90%, which is too big a range for me to feel comfortable. <laughs> but it's somewhere in there of Toronto is zoned for single family housing, which, I mean, Toronto's a glorified suburb. Um, you know, you that walk is, off of any... a really high number. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> I want to hit on something you said there before you go off on a, on a tangent there. Because <laughs> I didn't know that about uh, Jill. But Tori's previous number one competitor, I suppose, was a city planner as well and hopelessly lacking a class analysis as well. Jennifer Keysmat and had mm-hmm. almost a similar result. Right. So I don't think developers like the idea of city planners running for mayor. That no. has got to be one of their worst nightmares. Right. That's the issue. Is that like even like the most basic breadcrumb shit <laughs> like the 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 throwing us the slightest bone possible urbanism is is too radical for the city planners i mean not sorry sorry for 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 developers um it's that's what i'm saying it's it's all such a a connected issue because a threat to any individual part of this system is a threat to all of it so they don't allow any of it and we're losing on every possible front I mean, you you can analyze issues from pick pick an issue, and it's connected to the larger issues of capitalism, right? Oh and yeah. So and we have right. Yeah, <laughs> we, we do that episode. But I want to put a call out to the audience here to prove Santiago wrong. Okay, so find us some city planners, some urbanists that are completely radical, that have a class perspective <laughs> that we can be inspired by because. Yeah, right now we are definitely losing that battle. And although like Santiago and I have interest in this and we're mad as hell about Bill 23 and and the involvement of developer money, uh, I'd love to talk to somebody more versed on on solutions. I know that is a discussion right up your alley. The the way I would describe the urbanism movement is kind of similar to in um, the Green Party in a way where it's like, yeah, no, you're going to have your your radicals. You're, you have you have your radicals. The Green Party has your radicals, your eco-socialists, you know. Who's dominating the conversation is the um, capitalists on bicycles. And I think <laughs> it's the same thing on in on the urbanist front. It's your capitalists on bicycles who, you know, like they'll be great for bike lanes. And I can talk for hours about bike lanes if I'm provoked. <laughs> if like provoked. that isn't. Yeah, I will no, poke that, you right now. <laughs> that is an issue I care very greatly about, and we we need to address that. But my point is that the people who, the only people who are kind of like actually addressing that are, are lacking in other places. And so it's like we don't really have many avenues to turn to here. And, yeah, there's just there's a lot of work to do, I think, is the, the greater message here. I wish that wasn't like how we had to end almost all of our episodes with there's more questions, more work. But I mean, I that is what we're here for. I wanted to include one of these fun facts I dug up. I wanted I was hoping, you know, you kind of got a little docile on me, Santiago. Maybe we can get you all riled up again. (laughs) Hold on, hold on, hold on. So Doug Ford, one of the early things that he did when he came to power. (laughs) is he relaxed the naming policies for Ontario hospitals. Why am I bringing this up? Because all these great developers that we're talking about, 
they're also wonderful philanthropists. Okay, <laughs> so we can give them a pass because they are the only people building our fucking hospitals. And Doug made sure that they could name the hospital after themselves. So <laughs> this is how glorified uh, the capitalists have become uh, to the point where someone spent time passing legislation that made sure that we could start naming hospitals after developers again. So, yeah, if as if the billions were doling out to them in public funds and the green space were chopping up for them at their whim wasn't enough, uh, we will make it easier for the people to worship them. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, it's just like, yeah, it is it, it all... It's all bad, right? Like, of course, we have to. You, you, you don't just have to accept the shit. You have to like it too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, with the developers, it's not enough for them to screw us over. We also have to celebrate them doing it, which is kind of what they want here, right? They want us to celebrate their legacy as if their legacy isn't gutting us. But I won't do it. But there are people fighting back. That I, I, I do like to. Br- sign off with some positive news so i do save it for the end as we had them on here before sam hirsch from horizon ottawa and i mentioned acorn not only are they spending their resources digging up this information but they are trying to make sure everybody knows about it and i think being aware of the influence capital has on your daily lives right other than just exploiting you for your labor like it goes beyond that and they're doing great work to kind of making it taboo to take developer money, right? So it's now a bit of clout to be able to say you didn't take any developer money. So we can continue on that kind of work. How much that does, I don't know. But also, like, folks have proposed making uh, publicly funded campaigns a thing again. That's something, obviously, conservatives and liberals have clawed back. But it it would remove some influence. Some. I mean... One thing I need to mention, right, because I wrote an article earlier in in my semester. I don't know why I say semester. That's how I measure time. But uh, <laughs> about the, the No Developer Money Pledge, which was created by Diana Yoon. Um, and one of the issues that kept coming up when it came to this pledge was they had a really good excuse lined up. For, for themselves, the people who wanted to keep taking developer money, which is like because it corporations can't donate because it has to come to individuals. They say, well, we simply can't tell, you know, if if this money, you know, they, they, they turned a blind eye. Like, how could we possibly know where this money is coming from? This is just a person. How do we know if they have tied to developments? You know, like that's something that we, we can't veto. Ev- we can't like uh, audit every single donation that's coming in and so they they come up with that excuse for themselves and then they let themselves off the hook and they keep accepting developer money right so there needs to be a larger reforms to transparency to be able to 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 tell these things in the beginning we need to make it so that people like i mean elections we we just need to completely reform everything (laughs) involving elections at this point because it's all I know where we can start, though, because, like, I I got a list, right? I got National Observer in Canada land. Even, I think I found a global news article that has a pretty exhaustive list 
of these donors. Actually, yes. I'll link I'll link listeners to the database that Horizon Ottawa put together. So folks are making it super easy for campaigns like, you know, Christian Wong Tam to look up their donors to do a quick cross-reference. Tim Ellis can teach you how to do that automated, <laughs> okay? I, I'm not so saying that it's you can a start... valid excuse. <laughs> I'm saying that's their excuse. Well, I'm, I'm not saying that they couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying they couldn't do it if they actually had uh, a motivation to do it. I'm saying that they're, they're saying, you know, oh, the campaign happened too quick. You know, like they, in the moment, you know, like retrospect, we can point out how many donors they had. In the moment, they didn't... Uh, they're annoying about it, but they could if they actually wanted to Cause not I've, make any development money. I've seen some zeros. Uh, well, one of the interesting things that Horizon Ottawa have on their site was like a, a, a versus, you know, winner, loser columns, who took developer money, who didn't. And there's some notable ones at the bottom where their opponents took massive amounts from developers and they took zero and still won. So it wasn't just like there's some campaign no one cares about, so no one donated to them. They were a viable alternative. They were maybe a sure winner and developers threw everything they could at them and still couldn't unseat them. So it is definitely possible for campaigns to take that, that moral and valued approach to it. So that's a huge red flag. Anyone refusing for me. Meanwhile, in Toronto, 24 out of 24 elected council members took money from the development industry, including nine out of nine members of the planning and housing committee. Uh, Uh, also, I mean, it's kind of funny when you look through the list who took the most, you know, uh, Ford's nephew um, who ran in Etobicoke North took the, the second highest uh, amount of the, the city council candidates. And you could see, obviously, uh, you know, Cressy, Perks, uh, Layton had some of the lower numbers. And I just think that's because the developers don't like them. They still gave them money. Don't get me wrong. But just not as much as, you know, the Ford. So, like, it's everyone, everyone is implicated, but some people are more implicated than others, I guess. And at the end of the day, they're all voting for, they're all voting horribly. So They are. And it, it yeah, it's not just developers. It, it is a huge influence of capital. But thanks to the folks that are out there trying to pushing back on this. I hope this episode just kind of raises people's awareness as to, you know, it's not an anti-development thing, although sometimes it is, but it, it's just a matter of what lengths like they'll go to to control the government and why. And then the impact that has on our communities. And it's it's devastating. And we won't even know the impacts of Bill 23 uh, for quite some time. Like that'll be generational if someone doesn't come in and overturn that. And I have no hopes that anyone will. So, you know, keep fighting back. If, if we're wrapping up, I want to end with uh maybe like a fun little argument i want to propose or, or an idea you know just because i mentioned bike lanes and i feel like it's not uh, i'll bring it back okay they're not making like in toronto there's no acceptable bike lanes i was wondering what what would happen if we just did it ourselves like some gorilla bike lanes you know get get some Spray paint cans, maybe some sandbags. I don't know. And you just say, this is a bike lane now. Screw you, Toronto. <laughs> and, and and we take it back. I'm just I'm just saying. I feel like there's a lot of like biking union-esque organizations in Toronto that maybe would love to hear that kind of suggestion. That And 
like anything, would need a little bit of cross-solidarity. That's a lot of labor, but I'm willing to fill a few sandbags. I've got a couple pylons in my shed. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, at at this point, like, because obviously they're like, you know, you got to wait elections and then elections are bullshit and... I feel like, you. I feel you. And I think you're 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 feeding off a little bit of that last episode where you're talking about people taking like the community into their own hands and the needs of the community into their own hands. And I know we pay tax dollars for it, but that's going to rich people right now. So yeah. and and actually, you know what? I, I need to mention another thing that I can't believe I haven't mentioned, you know. Okay, because we're talking about affordable housing, I need to mention that there's companies like Starlight Financial that have billions dollars worth of uh, properties across Canada, a lot in Toronto. They buy up entire buildings and then they try and uh, renovate people and all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of great organizations that fight against this kind of thing. Stuff like Parkdale Organized that form tenant unions that fight against these. And they've had a lot of victories, right? So when it comes to like community-oriented solutions to affordable housing and I mean, for many people, affordable housing doesn't mean we're going to be buying anything anytime soon. It means affordable rent prices, right? Building solidarity with the people in your community, building these tenant unions, fighting back against the exploitation from these multinational billion-dollar corporations that buy up everything is actually a viable alternative. It's a solution that has been working in Toronto. They've had many victories. They've had rent strikes that they've won It's worked. Putting pressure on them has worked. So there are these kinds of solutions. And you know what? We got to we got to bring on Parkdale Organized one of these days. I was like, I smell an episode. I can just we got to bring on Parkdale Organized one of these days. We're going to talk about this more in depth because obviously the, the message of this episode is the elected people don't give a shit. They're not doing anything. Money has bought out our politics. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. Let's organize our communities. And because that's the only option we have right now right so and and that's well we'll dive deeper to that in the future right on comrade that is a wrap on another episode of blueprints of disruption thank you for joining us also a very big thank you to the producer of our show santiago halu quintero blueprints of disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively you can follow us on twitter at bp of disruption if you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo Please share our content, and if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.